everybody. Hi. Hey, I'm Alan. And I'm Brent. And we're here for episode seven. Seven. Seven of A-B testing. Wow, seven episodes. Congratulations, Brent. Woohoo! That's a prime <laughs> number, right? Seven is prime. You're very good at math. Yes. I've been re-listening to our last podcast and, and rethinking about the NFR discussion and, and uh, recognized that seven was the, the number you felt was the right one for us. Uh, no, I was just making up numbers. All right, fair enough. All right, so we are going to do something crazy today. Wacky. Wacky. Totally wacky. We're going to start right off with the mailbag. Nice. You're improving on this. It's fantastic. You know, I spend most of my drive to work with the windows down just practicing that line. Yeah, you clear your throat. Me, 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 me. Well, my daughter gave me um, a a microphone. it's not a. It's like her little kids. What it mostly plays princess songs, but I sing into it in the car. And, yeah, and, and try not to get laughed at or, or pulled over. Do you have the frozen memorized now? No. Do you want to build? A no. <laughs> my my. We son, are in a no frozen zone. My my son. Um, last NFZ week, a no frozen zone. My son last week uh, dropped my wife on the floor. Because he started doing a lip sync dance to Do You Want to Build a Snowman? But that was funny because he did it sarcastically. <laughs> yeah, sure. This is, um, and next week, more fun from the Jensen household. <laughs> All right. So, um, mailbag item, Alan. I, I actually had uh, lunch yesterday with, with uh, a, a, a colleague of ours, Ben. Oh, yeah. And he. I had to cancel on Ben this week. I had the ta- tangent. I got uh, food poisoning over the weekend, so I was wiped out on Monday. We're supposed to have lunch on Monday. So, did you guys go to sushi? No. Uh, oh, yes, actually, we did. We did. Uh, yeah, Ben and I usually go to sushi too. So, so Alan is a wacky mold of vegetarian. So, just curious, how do you get food poisoning from carrots? Uh, well, you go to a certain local establishment I won't name, and you um, get a garden burger and onion rings, and take your chances. We, okay. Anyway, moving on. Um, <clears throat> so he and I had lunch, and one of the things he wanted to start with was he said, hey, I just want you to know that I am getting comments from all over. I don't know what that means. Maybe he hangs out with the same three listeners we've identified. Or your kid. Or my son, yes. And he said, um, ever since you and I have started putting on the, the podcast – uh, there's a, been a great deal of people coming to him influenced positively by that. Um, in particular, leads. That leads are finding value in what we're doing because it's, it's helping them lead their people through change. Well, we did because we kind of talked a lot about leading through change. There's, there's one thing I wanted to, to carry on with that further today because we were that topic is not done and as you know organizationally corporate wide we are nowhere close to done with this change and 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 there are a lot of people still working through that change management agreed yes all right where are you going um so one of the things i wanted to spend a, a little bit of time on is is trying to help those leads. So, so Ben and I chatted, and I said, what value are they getting exactly from us? And that is what they're getting is the message to, to their people that helps them to move forward. Right, right now, one of the things that are happening is a lot of this data isn't being pushed down to the leads. And data, data are. I think data datum. What's the singular? Um, So I wanted to start off with a a quote. Um, I'm knocking the microphone. Sorry for that. I wanted to start off with a quote that I that I recently encountered. Okay, it's a little bit longish, but I'd love to see what your your thoughts are. Four score and go ahead. No, I'm not. Different different quote. All right, go ahead. On the twelfth day. No. Um. In practice. All systems do insist on exercising their own creativity. They never accept imposed solutions, predetermined designs, 
or well-articulated plans that have been generated somewhere else. Too often, we interpret their refusal to change as resistance. We say that people innately resist change. But the resistance we experience from others is not to change itself. It is to the particular process of change that believes in imposition rather than creation. It is the resistance of a living system to be treated as a non-living thing. It is an, an assertion of the system's right to create. It is life insisting on its primary responsibility to create itself. That's, that's the quote. What that essentially means... And, and where is that from? It is from a, a book called A Simpler Way. What's your thoughts? My thoughts, I was going to ask you to put it a simpler way, but it, make, <laughs> it makes sense. Sure, sure. It, it reflects it, uh, it's something. What's the adjective I'm looking for? It reminds me a little bit of some of the things that uh, Singe talks about in the Fifth Discipline, about the learning organization and how – and it all makes sense to me, but I'm trying to figure out where you're going with this. So what – the way I capture this quote in a, in a simpler way is essentially people are thinking change is the problem. And the problem is when the change occurs, you have people feeling trapped. That's the problem, is that they feel trapped. They don't understand how they're going to provide value in this new world. But is, Alan wants is, to say is that something. is that a communication issue? You know, absolutely talk- it is. Absolutely it is, and that's the point. What, what the point that that I would want to get across on this one is that the best way leads can really help their folks is to say your sense of entrapment is in your head, and help them to move th- through that as fast as possible. There are more changes coming, right? The, uh, as, as Alan and I have hinted at this in, in a in a uh, several podcasts, one of the changes uh, my team is undergoing this. There is another major uh, division undergoing this change, and I'll be a bit hyperbolistic. At the end of this change, I firmly believe the following things will occur. Okay, number one, world peace. Test will be gone. Number two. Oh, no. No, wait. Not the test is dead speech. No. All right. We'll go back to that later. All right. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I actually – so one of my uh, more popular uh, blog posts was there's no hope in test. And I'm actually very tempted to write, you know what? At this point in time, there is no hope for test. Now, let's let's pause there a moment because um, I think that there are – a lot of wrong ways to interpret that statement. And I yeah. think we can talk about the test activity versus the role, but what it comes down to is the, the need for uh, a separate team to throw stuff over the wall to is getting in the way of creativity and quick software development. It doesn't mean, and the, the, the point I want to get to is I think when a lot of teams move this direction, they freak out because they think that, oh my gosh, now everybody has to do everything. And that is, if you think that, you will indeed fail. Yeah, absolutely. That's horrible. It's, everybody doesn't do everything. You still have generalizing specialists, who, and you have a team that you jigsaw together. You, you guys can't see it, but I roll my eyes every time he says that. What, because you prefer, I would say, specializing generalists? Yeah, it doesn't matter. We, we, we need... It's just because really you're what we need. Really what we need is we need teams that understand... And build towards the value of diverse strengths. Yes. Let's just say that. Let's, we need a diverse team. Every, if you try and build a team where everybody does everything, well, everyone will write code, and then they'll test it, then they'll deploy it, then they'll test it in production, they'll analyze the data. Everyone does that. That is BS. Total BS. You need people to do all those things. Some <clears throat> people can do all of them. It would probably isn't in their best interest to try and do all of them because then they're in the multitasking makes you stupid camp you, you leverage your strengths and maybe you know someone's really good at all of that stuff which means great they can fill in anywhere 
But I believe, and we've talked about our, you know, our team principles before you, your best shot at building a, a great team is to have, have a team where people can, everyone on the team can, you know, play to their passions. Absolutely. And then, you know, I also firmly believe, and there's, uh, uh, again, I refer back to the Lencioni book on um, tying organizational health to product quality, that if you build a great team, you're going to make great software. Yes. Let me, let me continue on with All the, right, the, you can the, try. The, yeah, I, I know I will try. All right, the other thing, and again, I'm being hyper, or hyperbolistic on, on purpose, but I also believe the PM role is gone. The PMs will shift into more of a role of product planning, which is much more along the lines of planning out the future, not necessarily uh, managing the present. So their, their role will be much more around exploring world opportunities, uh, coming up with innovative ideas that can be tested. What, um, what, what's your timeline for this, this, uh, this sort of move? Uh, this is going to happen. The, the beginnings of this will absolutely happen in our company in the next quarter. I, I can see that. I know that we have um, – I could probably – about labeling anyone. I know there's some flattening and some, some, some combining mm-hmm. going on in some teams at Microsoft and some reduction in the number of PMs on those teams. So, and for the record, I love it. <laughs> Next, leads will be gone. Also, I also have seen examples of that. So, uh, <clears throat> and, the te- and the teams I've talked to, like engineering director, some engineering managers, each mm-hmm. of those with you know, 12 to 16 directs. Right. Again, like it. <laughs> you will also like the next two. All right. The functional. Brent, so sorry. I, I just need a moment. Deep <laughs> breath. Brent's getting me a little, a little excited here. All right, go on. Next, the functional model will be gone. Doesn't it go away? I, talk more about that because I, I, I that seems the, sort of the functional model. Uh, I don't know th- if this translates worldwide. No, uh, with, within the the corporation, another one of those Microsoft. We have things. we we not only have separated um, sort of activities into distinct human roles, but we also have constructed an entire management chain around it. So we have director of tests, we have director of development, we have director of PM. Um, and what, what that ends up doing is it, it sort of maximizes the number of people who have to say yes before the product can ship. That model's gone. Hallelujah. And I, that, I know you will mourn this last one. But, to, but actually pause there because I don't get how that's different from what we've talked about above. When we start flattening orgs and eliminate disciplines, what, what, why is it something separate that the functional model It's not is different. It's, um, it's a different way of looking at the same thing. Okay. So some but, people are going to view this as, oh, my gosh, test is gone. How can you say that? Well, another consequence is that, no, so the whole separation of disciplines is gone. Let me let me pause for the last one yeah. because that flattening is going to scare people too uh, from from two sides. Wait before you go. All right, because Brent's in charge. Yes, um, command and control will be gone. Yes, and, and you've already mentioned it. And what will happen? These are all the same thing. This is not fi- a five step thing. This is like it's a, not. It's one little tweak. Bam, they're gone. It's essentially one little tweak, bam, they're gone. Except for all the culture. the We have, like, legacy culture. The at cultural ramifications. And, and when I mean the command and control will be gone is we will have such a high span of control that people who, who used to thrive and believe that they could micromanage anything, that they, those folks will not scale. Now, that is an important change because the, the leaders in charge, they're going to have to figure out how to train how to train individuals to lead themselves and from my experience having gone through this a couple of times that is going to be a big loss to a lot of ICs so Brent just gave me I was about to interrupt you like the finger like no uh, 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 yep. uh, not done yet I'm almost done are, are you done now you may go 
So now I forgot my point, damn it. Uh, I like all this. And I think there's a lot of reasons for people to freak out. But for anyone worth their salt, no worries. Because the things I like about this are is, you know, Peter Drucker 20 years ago said, you know, knowledge workers like we are today can't be managed, micromanaged, can't be told what to do all the time. We need to have that creativity to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. That's all absolutely true in the way we work. When you have a flatter org structure, you have um, a couple a couple things come out of that. One are a couple fears rise out of that. One is the managers going. Well, there's two manager fears, two types of managers that have fears. There, the first manager is the one who's in charge of the team of sixteen, which may go, "Oh, I don't know how to manage this many people. How do I get sixteen one-on-ones on my calendar every week?" And the answer is, you don't. And the thing is, you don't manage your team; you coach them. You mentor them, you guide them, you give you 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 track you keep track of what they're doing, but you don't manage them. You you are a lot closer to You give them the framework they need to work in. You yep. make sure that you, you over communicate your total clarity on what you expect them to do, and then you get out of their way and then uh let them self organize, let them figure out they can figure out what to do. And that ties into the other lead. I'm going to come back to it in a second. But then the IC is like, well, um, now I can never be a lead because it's so I, could, I can either be an IC or I can be this engineering manager. Nothing in between. It's like, well, you know, duh, but duh, but duh. But the difference is, is that I'm those, not certain the, how to translate duh, but duh, but duh. Duh, but duh, but duh, but is, um, oh, I think it's this. It's I'll, I'll show Brent in sign language. Yeah. Right now, Alan is saying, Brent, Brent you're number, number one. one. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So <clears throat> the role of the lead at Microsoft today is sort of a technical lead role plus a lot of meetings. Kind of an ineffective use of a lead in many cases. When you have a team of, you know, you have like 16 people, 15 people, um, you're not all working on the exact same thing. Again, Microsoft is also very married to the idea of, of a team represents a functional part of the product. Mm-hmm. So the org structure is the product, mm-hmm. and it's it doesn't. Guess what? <coughs> no reverb for this, but it doesn't have to be that way. There's a little secret tip. I might have a team of dozen people, fifteen people, and for this iteration, boy, we we really need to get graphics performance working, you know. And and I'm kind of that's my that's my area of expertise. I kind of become the virtual lead for that part, little little the go-to guy. I make sure we, I get the right people together and we figure it out and we get stuff done, and it's fantastic. And that's that's your lead opportunity. Mm-hmm. And you do enough of those, and maybe you're the next guy in line for the engineering manager, But if that's the direction you want to go. But we don't need as many managers in place to do that stuff. We need There's lots and lots and lots of opportunities for leadership mm-hmm. that need to occur. And yet another tangent, before I go back to the other type of manager um, who is going to have a worry here, is that – you know, I think it's interesting that people are getting leads are getting value on kind of how to lead through change from Brent and I. One thing maybe not clear to the listeners outside of Microsoft, maybe some of those even inside of Microsoft, is Brent is a manager of people. Today, I am. Today at least. Alan, me, I'm not. I don't manage people. Alan I, is a voider and an avoider of a being. Vo- <laughs> a voider? <laughs> And I think it's because uh, – for me, it's not – I don't think. It's definitely because in this sort of organization, I think I'll probably still be an IC. I could be uh, – I have nothing against management. I could be a manager in some other type of organization. But at Microsoft, management unfortunately generally means uh, just having a lot more meetings. So one of the things that I would also say is while Alan isn't a manager and I am – I would say one thing that we have in common is we're both very passionate around leadership. Alan views his role as being highly more effective in leading others in an IC role, whereas I view um, my ability to apply leadership a lot more effective when I have people underneath me. Yeah, and that's that's totally fine. Anyway, so So, uh, blah, 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 rewind, pop pop the stack. There's the other kind of manager, and this is the one – that I have a message for. So, okay, there's engineering managers and then there's a bunch of ICs and guess what happens? There's a lot of managers who no longer have manager jobs when you make this sort of move. It's like, oh, ba-da, ba-da. How do you translate that? 
I translated equivalently to the last one. All right, I, maybe boohoo. And the answer, <laughs> the answer there is, um, uh, I want to say tough, but that's probably that's probably a little bit too harsh. Buck up, Buttercup. Yeah, it's it's like being a lead or a manager isn't some special right you've earned. You know, you need you. Maybe you're capable of being an engineering manager, and there isn't a job opening for you. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, and maybe, but if you're a, it's not like just because you're a lead, you're incapable of doing that IC role. And also, if you are an, in the IC role and you are and you were a former lead, and you're not the one stepping up to be that technical lead and and help help that team self organize and form those problems. My question is, why were you ever a lead in first place? So let me carry on from what Alan was just saying. So he, he made a distinction between leaders and managers. Okay, so this... In, I guess I did it indirectly. Yeah, in, in, in my next set of words, for lack of a better word, I want to address the leaders who listen to us. When I say leaders, these are people who are focused on doing the right thing for the business and their team, um, to some degree ignoring the consequences to themselves. Okay. There are a bunch of leaders, leaders out, out right now that are listening to us, and these are the guys who I think are giving us the feedback that we're adding value to their lives. This change, to some degree, will occur in the next quarter. Okay, Guys, there's a sense of urgency. I, I, wait, I'm, I'm going to miss most of the next quarter. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's off in the, the, the Provence. Anyway, so... <clears throat> What I want you guys to think through now is how to be proactive on this. When this change occurs, your team's going to freak out. Okay? There's two ways of thinking of this problem. Number one, how do I calm them down? Or number two, which I think is better, how do I get them to understand that all change is an opportunity and help them to capture that opportunity? I think the answer there is in all of our previous podcasts where we talked about this. I mean, every, everything is in there, buried in there. there there's, so I'll, I'll just go very quickly. Okay? All right. Because this is... Um, Talk to the microphone, not to me. My team, <laughs> my team is going through this now, and so there's a series of conversations that I'm having all across the board. Okay? First and foremost, when or if this, team, this, this change hits your team, you need to understand you will have roughly a week, maybe two, to act. That is not enough time. Then the zombies come? What happens? No. <laughs> what, what, will, what will end up happening with, with ICs, those who recognize it's an opportunity and act will, will increase the probability that they land in the position that they are looking for. Those who are reeling from the loss of, say, a command and control structure, those waiting for the managers to decide their fate, okay, they will be placed uh, in positions that their management view is appropriate based on what their management has visibility to. First thing leads. What you need to do is find a way to get these, the, particularly the, the ones who are emotional, is you need to listen and get them through that emotional stage as fast as possible. One of the messages I've been saying, hey, I see that you have an impact. May I recommend that you schedule an, um, your, um, your cry fest two to three months from now because you do not have time for that today. <laughs> okay? Yeah, that's a good way to put that. That's going um, to work out really well. It, it, yeah, it's worked. It's actually worked rather well. There is no crying in engineering. <laughs> you can cry if you want to. I don't recommend that as a strategy because you don't have time for it. The second it's thing. It's my org change. You can cry if you want to. Wasn't that a song in the 50s? I think something like that. All right. If those who, who just don't have the capability of doing that, then you do need to just listen, uh, empathize with them, understand their fears, and, and, and have them feel as if you got their back. The second thing, what I tell people, is then what you need to do is you say, I need you to go look at the options. There's a whole bunch of options. Let's, let's say, like the, the worst case scenario, you're a test lead who's been doing a PM role. Right? Those people are heavily at risk. What I, say, what I tell people, look at your available options 
and find the things that you would be most passionate about. Start with your passion. Use it as an opportunity. Oh my gosh, this is something I would love to go do. Second, figure out what you already do well towards that passion. Third, figure out how those two things, your passion and what you do well, will add business value. And then most importantly, usually these messages will come out with the, the new leaders that are, are leading these new missions. Go proactively have that conversation and let that leader know what you came to conclusion on your the last three things, your passion, what you do well, and how you'll use it to add business value. If you do that, once this change hits hits you, or, or if you're a lead and you encourage your team to do the same thing, that will increase the probability that they will land in a team that solves all three of those problems. That is the best advice I can give you right now. It is important that you prepare for that. I'm done. Anything else you want to say? We can I, go to mailbag too. No, no, we can't. I think uh, <laughs> rather than force someone to listen to every single one of our podcasts to find the, the answers there, I think you know, to me, the key there yep. is to the, the quicker you can understand why the change is happening and what's going to come out of it, and then you can communicate that and over-communicate that and over-clarify that to the people on your team, the better off you're going to be. And give them a method by which they could learn what they don't know today. Yeah, and and it's perfectly okay to be uncomfortable, I believe. And I've, I've shared this quote before from the Hephaest book, and my slightly paraphrased version, which is, leadership is disappointing people at a level they can tolerate. Yes, I like that quote. I love that quote. All right, want to go on to mailbag number two? Mailbag number two. <clears throat> dun, dun, dun. So, I, I'm... I, I want the little voice in the background. Number two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, moving on. So, there was a question that, that Ben asked me as well, and I gave him my answer. Are I, we still on our Ben or this Ben Affleck? Our Ben. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm nowhere close cool enough to, to get questions from Ben Affleck. That's for sure. And given... Uh, Go on. Given Daredevil, I'm not really certain I would want to. Um, all right. Here's a, a question I'm dropping on you, Alan. All right. Okay. If you were opening a new job description that tried to attract the right people to the type of organization we are heading to, what would be the key four to five bullets you would be looking for? Consider that you may want different types of people, and these bullets should try to attract from all of those types. Yeah, I don't, I don't need that many bullets. Okay. I believe in a – probably the last one I'll ask. Somewhere down the bullet list is I want people who are passionate about learning. And to me that, that – because, again, it's like I want people with five years of SWIFT experience. You know, not going to happen. You know, I'm not going to go out, you know, for a brand new language, for example, I'm not going to go out and hire um, someone with experience in that, but people with passion for learning and demonstrated experience in that. I want problem solvers, collaborate, people that like working together. So if I, my bullet points are team player and collaborator, uh, passion for learning, fantastic problem solvers. Um, so I'm going to call you on this now because sure, go ahead. Everything you've got listed mm -hmm. is a generalist. So what would be the types of generalizing specialists? Well, no, uh, uh. So <laughs> the last two bullet points, buddy boy, working together. You didn't tell me. You didn't tell me. Those things are critical for me. Okay. If if I get those people and they're all COBOL programmers and you're telling me I got to build a web service, I'm screwed. Right. Um, so I need some expertise to help lead the team. You didn't tell me what product I'm building yet. It does. Ah, it does matter because nah. that's where my <laughs> other two bullet points come from. <laughs> I have to. Tr I have to troll for some expertise in the technology as well, or a related technology where I, c I know I can grow and adapt them. But I got to have those things. Those generalist things are the most are critical generalist attributes now tell me about the product and just for example it's it i'm gonna sell not shoes like zappos and like mappos i'm gonna sell maps how I about want someone familiar with you know rest apis and you know i i can i might, might not even go that specific i may go web development experience or something 
like, are there are there consider the the world we're heading into and and consider missing capabilities that that we don't have in that world as a whole but but specialist type of capabilities so some of the specialist capabilities we need are data science stuff okay as we get a product out brand new product i may bring them out a little bit later maybe not i don't know i need uh architectural people who can design the product and figure out how it's going to all work together versus a bunch of generals sticking their stuff together with scotch tape. Um, I need some people, again, I'm going to need people who are technically proficient or have experience in the areas of the, gosh, the technology we're going to build on and maybe I have to wait for the architect to be done on there. I think I have some ideas of what we're going to do. Uh, Most people who have done you know, serious web development and web development doesn't mean you hack together some HTML for your grandma. So people, people have done some serious web development um, are have done so in a variety of languages. It's interesting. Uh, so, so your answer there was remarkably similar to mine. The the first one because you copied. I ah whatever. I have it written down. First off. One of the things that I said is that you said data sciencey stuff, and there's a there's a parallel uh, that I've come to realize right now throughout the company. Everyone's trying to da- hire data scientists like crazy, and, and even if they don't know what they are, especially if they don't <laughs> can you know spell math? Hired. <laughs> the the and one of the things that I've had find, or had to find myself explaining is what exactly uh, a data science is, but in a way of a metaphor. I'm like, if we think of data flow or data analytics or data insight in, in, in like a, a developing a new product, okay? I, I tell them, you should think of a data scientist like a dev architect, okay? We don't need 20 of those on a team. But there is another role where we do need a bunch of them, and those are called data analysts. Uh-huh. Right. So what I we- think that's and to interrupt, great insight and a piece that I think too many teams, at least here, have missed. Yes. All right. Go on. I'm we a- do need data science guys, just like we need dev architects whose role it is to understand the system end to end and help train up the developers. Mm-hmm. We need data science guys who can do the same and help train up. The data analysts. I, I, I totally agree. And I'm that's one of the things that I know you have farther to go, but one of the things that's been pushing my buttons a lot um, with some teams I work with here at Microsoft is the sort of over-indexing on everybody must be deep data scientists. And no, because so much of what we want to know is just data analysis, business intelligence. We need some people who actually get how to derive insights properly. Um, I'm so worried that... These half-equipped people will use a little bit of knowledge about you know, Bayesian analysis and statistics to make some totally screwed-up correlations mm-hmm. and, and, and dig us a hole. I'm really, really worried about that. I want people who know what they're doing to do that. A whole bunch of other people can analyze and generate data and figure stuff out. But I, wanna, I want to – I would prefer – to let the people who actually really know what they're doing make some of those uh, more uh, and what I involved would, I, choices, decisions. I, I hear analysis. what you're saying, and what I would actually argue is that we need both. No, we I, we I, need I, those I, people that you're afraid of, but we need them guided by someone who knows what they're doing. Yes, my wor- and the worry is that the people who I'm afraid of um, will, be the, will not be guided, and they'll be the ones that we believe. Yes, and that will absolutely happen. And, and we'll, we'll insert insert boom explosion sound effect here. <laughs> Can you I do that later? I don't. Have, <laughs> I don't have one. I got. I got to find the royalty free uh, sound effect library. The other thing I said was business innovators, people who who understand the possible markets and and can come up with new ideas for us to explore. We've talked before about um, we will have needs for doing flighting, but we, what we also need is a good set of people to to really help direct the uh, or constrain what we flight. Great, I'm on SQL BI. Uh, I'm I'm on the business intelligence team. 
right? Someone comes down and says, hey, what we really should do is flight an experiment to help cat groomers. Uh, why? <laughs> right? Someone, someone that, can, that can look at the market as a whole, generate ideas around how we could um, do leapfrog innovation. One of the challenges with, with data science on its own, data science is very good at looking at the data we have right now and helping us to evolve. But to get those really breakthrough things, you still need people. The, the um, model, model building, this is the idea of generating data flows to, to help decision making. Model building is really a, a strong combination of art and science, which, by the way, is something TEST is very good at. This is how we've done a lot of our test automation in the past. What do we think is the most important? Um, there's an art around communication. I think we're well built for this. The last one, I think, is similar to what you were talking about with the system architectures or the, the system architects. Okay, I actually view it as what we need is system thinkers. Yeah, I believe And that. we need them to have the ability to, to capture what they observe in terms of the system and automate improvements around it. I, I think actually you, Alan, when you say you're a specialist in process, actually I think you're one of these guys that I'm talking about. I've stunned Alan. Uh, I, I, I'm processing. Okay. Go on, Brent. <laughs> So for, for an example, uh, I had a conversation just this last week around alerting and monitoring, right? Everyone knows we need alerting and monitoring this service, okay? But what no one knows is what the value is of it. And I explained, let's say two years from now, the value of this alerting and monitoring two years from now is that um, when a dev does a check-in, because we go straight to prod, and in that future world, they do a check-in. Five minutes later, it's in prod. Five minutes later, we have a system that, that detected that they have a, a that that check-in, that exact check-in has a negative customer impact, and there's a, a mail notification that is sent to that developer within five minutes of, of that check-in saying, you have an impact, here's the log traces, investigate what the right option is to do. I'm disappointed we have to use email for that, but but I'll live. So I Yammer. want a couple things. I don't know what it is, but I want it to be less than it five minutes. And you didn't mention it, but is it automatic? I don't want just a notification. I want it chucked out of there. But understand what I did there, right? First off, to me, that's to me, maybe I'm just uh, in a different world, but to me, that's just bread and butter. Of course, that's what you want to do. No, but that's because you're a systems thinker, and it's <sighs> not bread and butter. Others don't think this way. Screw all you guys! <laughs> <laughs> the, the, what we did there is we said, how does the system work, and what is the value we're trying to capture from it? Now, let's go automate and capture that value. Right? Yeah, and I, I guess I can see that. Oftentimes, the uh, solution is, let's go automate. We'll figure out what the value is later. I, I you're you're not saying that you support that model? No, no, oh, no. Okay, no. Um, <clears throat> Always wanted to write some automation. The and then there's one last. We have one last question. Do we have time for it? Uh, I think so. Do you want to move on to it? Are you okay? Are you done rambling yeah. about that? So, and then if we have time, there's an there's an idea that I'm going to do that I'll that I'll. If, all right, we we'll see. We'll yep. see. So um, another one from uh, my personal mailbag. I someone emailed me and said, "Hey, Alan." Our team's doing kind of agile stuff, and I'm not sure how do we measure accountability on an agile team. So, Brent, I'm going to ask you. So, and I had an answer, and I'm not going to give you my answer yet, but I'm going to ask you how do you, what, what does the accountability model look like on an agile team? Did you get a sense of what they want that team to be accountable for? In the past, the team has been accountable for, uh, Hold you know uh, meeting their estimates, uh, getting you know getting things done on time and of of some level of quality. Is this coming from our uh, now be. famous uh, your uh, the, dev the, manager friend? The the dev manager friend who has come up before in this podcast. Yeah, so this is from his manager actually. Okay, so <clears throat> in an agile team, the only thing of value to hold the Agile team accountable for 
is the production of value. In other words, a lot of teams are like, hey, I want this task done on this time. So you're saying the team – so I get that. So then is the team have a group accountability or That's, is there individual accountability as well? Uh, so we've talked about and, – and it's gotten to a point where I'm, I'm starting to think how to rephrase this. The term self-organiz- self-organizing, okay? Unfortunately, that's starting to become cliche and inactionable, right? What, what, boo. I have, boo, yes. what I have found is to be the most successful thing to do is, is to lay down to the team, guys, you guys need to be accountable for this value statement. Let's say, I don't, I don't care, but I need the architecture of this system to be, hand, to be able to handle another 20% throughput in the next month because we know uh, load is going to increase in that time frame. Okay? That's the value proposition. I want this thing to be able to handle another 20% of load in that time frame. And then you hold that team accountable. Let them figure out how they're going to achieve that goal. If you, if you do personal accountability... Um, then you'll have individuals who are achieving what they got done and other individuals achieving what they got done. But when we try to integrate that, the value proposition that you're going for um, won't be delivered. Right? You want them to go after what, what is the value we want to capture. The, you don't look happy with me. No, answer. no, go on, go on. I'll have my turn. Okay. Um, there is a timeliness factor to that, of course. You can't, you can't allow them to, to take that one 20% goal and take six months to do it. Um, but if it, if it takes uh, two days longer to, to solidify, then uh, in my humble opinion, that's just fine. Yeah. To me, that answer is I, I get where you're coming from and I get all that. I think that uh, probably not the answer they were looking for. Um, meaning that uh, if you could say if everyone's accountable, then no one's accountable. So team accountability is tough. So my answer was, and I'll stand, I'll stand by this. I, I believe this, especially in the context of our discussion before, is that yes, everything Brent said is true. You want to hold the team, you, you know, the team. I'm you're accountable for you know getting this is for a value stream. We expected this to get done, this iteration. We expected these items to get done off the Kanban board in this amount of time. Um, you know, we're going to ho- kind of hold the team accountable. But if they don't make it, it's not like we're going to penalize the team, put them in the penalty box. But as far as individual accountability, I put that on the manager of the team. A man, I don't care if, it's, if you have four people working for you or 16. As a manager of a team of people, I know who has pulled their weight who has not pulled their weight and had a bad iteration, who is kicking butt for each iteration. That may change as, you know, for iteration, iteration. But I know if, if as a manager, I don't know how everybody in my team has performed over the last iteration or, you know, uh, these items on the Kanban board, I'm a crummy manager. I need to know that stuff. I need to know how my team's doing. And sometimes they're going to sandbag me or whatever. And as far as estimates go, and I brought these up just in the context of the conversation. I said, if someone gets their estimates wrong, you know, that's a starting point for a conversation. Um, if you start holding, and again, if you start holding people accountable for their estimates, they're going to start mucking with the values until they get them right. But let you want to see a couple things with estimates. You want to see some improvement over time. People should get better at them over time. Um, and if somebody's way off, you have a conversation about it. It may be their their estimate was way off because they screwed off and watched World Cup soccer all day instead of doing their job. Or it may be that once they actually looked into the work item, there was a whole can of worms there that no one could have anticipated. You know, two completely different ways to get to the same uh, the same end. So I want to use an, uh, the uh, a really invalid estimate or or a, a estimate that was missed by a lot. As a starting point for a conversation, not as a single point of accountability. And then there's code quality. I want to make sure what you delivered was what, you know, was it as good as our standards or better? Um, collaboration. I look for, t- look for team members who are helping each other out. 
I want people doing code reviews for each other. I want people, you know, helping each other out and examples of that. And as a manager, I have those things. So all those things, I want to hold individuals accountable and make sure I know that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. But I'm not going to look at a single point like, did you get done when you said you would check? No, no check plus minus. That's just <clears throat> stupid. There's a couple of things that uh, uh, in terms of what you said that in the spirit of it, I agree in terms of how you would deploy it. I don't. The, the first thing, like the question you asked me is, how do you hold a team accountable? Right? Honestly, my answer is, is you don't. What you do is you figure out how to get the team to hold themselves accountable. Any process that says, it's my job to hold others accountable. That's reinvigorating the command and control structure. No, I'm not saying you, you completely misunderstood. No, no, no. Let me finish. All right, I, didn't, I did not completely misunderstood. Probably. It, it, so when I spin, and, and it goes to the first topic, how do, how do you help leads to scale in this world where there's going to be 10 to 15 plus reports that they have? Right? Um, you act like it's a big deal. It's whatever. Like if, if honestly, if says not, the guy who runs screaming every time he's in a manager role. If you're not capable of running it, if you don't, you can't see how easy—not easy—but if you can't see the value in having a team that size, and you're afraid of it, guess what? Don't be a manager. Get the hell out. My my strategy when it comes to my team is: look, what we need to do is deliver the most business value as fast as possible. Learning is important. Yay. Um, and my accountability that, that I expect of that team is to constantly accelerate that goal. How do, how do we provide the most? So let's step, no, no, no. Let's step out of the agile stream stuff for a minute. There is also the people management part and you have to know, you want to take your top performers and celebrate those victories. So everyone goes, what these guys are doing is great. Do more of this stuff. Then you want to be able to non-publicly dive in on those lower performers for whatever reason and give them the coaching they need. There's, that's the part I'm talking about here. Not about the value stream. But and, that's and, not an accountability. That's an identification problem. Well, that, well it's both. It, I can see why you would say that. Like, how do I identify those folks? How do I understand what they're doing wrong? What they're doing wrong is more often than not a behavior thing. And, and trying to deliver some stupid metric that says, well, you didn't do 10 widgets a, yeah, a and day. And I don't thing. want it to be a metric. I want it to be a purely a management activity to know who on the team is doing you know, really well and, and celebrating that publicly so people can know to do mm-hmm. more of that and knowing where I need to do coaching. That is, you do that through personal and human interaction, not through metrics. You do, and and if you if you do it right, you don't. You as a manager don't need to be the one doing it. So I I talked last. Well, or you, well, you as a manager should be observing it. Ob- yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you need and, to and, know. The point is, you need to know what's going on. And facilitating the the breakthrough on these type of bottlenecks. So, so the, the the person that you identify. In my way of thinking, they're a bottleneck to the team process. And it's my job to, to help identify those bottlenecks and remove them from the system using whatever tool in my tool bag. And I am willing to use any tool in my tool bag, including you're no longer part of my system. Um, but one of the better ways of, of doing this is uh, make it transparent. So I talked about value stream maps. If we do a value stream map on something that's that last time, uh, if we do a value stream map on something critical for the, the team's success, the, 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 the value the team's trying to capture, and we realize, hey, there was a two-week de- two delay because this guy was goofing off, right? Um, it doesn't stand too long when, when you have that discussion as a team and that guy and everyone else on the team is staring at the two-week delay. Yes, but there's, it may just be they were goofing off. They could have had family problems. They could have been, you know, a whole bunch. They could be on the and wrong job. And all those job. reasons will come when out. When I take the COBOL programmer and put him on the rest service and he goes, blah, 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 blah. I, you know, I did a bad job as a manager. I didn't go fix that. But then that's still not the issue of how do I hold individuals accountable. That's how do I hold myself accountable. Sure. All right, Brent, you're just... All right, we better stop. Wait, wait. So there's you got actually, more crap. There's one other thing that I want to. There's always one other thing. Okay. 
So you and I have talked many a time about the need for knowledge sharing and, and, and uh, increasing the rate at which people learn uh, what they don't know they don't know. Okay? And we've talked about one of our competitors who do status reports every Friday, and I have actually... Um, searchable. Searchable. The whole company. Yes. And I have been talking to others around this for a long time, and it wasn't until yesterday that I realized, holy crap, what am I waiting for? So I am going to do a new thing on my team. I call them individual retrospective reports. Very soon, uh, me and my team, what we will be doing is we will be posting to a public Yammer group um, these individual retrospective reports, and the intent of the report is not a status report. The intent of the report is to communicate publicly on an individual basis what are they doing, where they can use help from others, and where they think they might be able to help others. And the entire intent of this thing is to increase the odds that someone who can help us and someone we can help can find us. And we're gonna, I'm going to do a competition on my team to see who can come up with the right format that can keep that report down to 15 minutes and attract the most of that communication. All right. Well, we'll visit that more in the future when we have time to talk about it. I would love to hear your initial thought, though. Well, no time. So <laughs> that'll be in episode eight. Put it on the backlog there, BJ. All right, then. All right, everybody. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And we'll see you later. Thank you. Bye.